All right, good morning. Welcome. If, I, if you weren't in here earlier, I just want to say welcome. Thank you for being here. Good to see you, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> you surprised me when y'all walked in. What's up? Anyway, I'm glad you're here today, and uh, we're still studying in the book of Galatians, so if you want to go ahead and turn there and get ahead of the game, go ahead and do that. Uh, One of the great things that we're doing as we go through this series, and we're looking at the big themes that the Apostle Paul uh, is using and trying to accomplish in the book of Galatians as he's writing to these Christians in this region who are faced with a lot of confusing ideas. And what we really landed on last week and spent a bunch of time talking about was the importance for a Christian of having discernment. That's the word. And we talked a lot about that. And our group, um, we're, we're in a Thursday night couples group, Jess and I, and we talked a lot about that in group. And as important as discernment was for the Galatians, because they had these people coming in on, on the the heels of Paul and and telling them things that weren't true, telling them that they had to uh, observe the entire Jewish law. They had to become Jewish, essentially, in order to be Christian, which wasn't true. It wasn't what Paul had taught them. They were coming in on his heels and confusing these Galatian Christians, and Paul is saying, hey, you need to be able to see what's going on here. You need to know what the truth is. You need to follow sources that you trust. That's all part of discernment. And so he's, he's telling them that, and as much as they need to hear that, For us today in the world we live in, we need it as much, if not more, because we are bombarded constantly with people's ideas about everything, but but also about God and who he is and how salvation works and who you are and and how to live and how how to walk in the spirit and all kinds of things. And so discernment is incredibly important for us. And we talked about something in group. This is one of my favorite analogies. I shared it with the group. I felt like it was helpful. And I don't, can't remember if I've shared it here. I say so many things here. I can't remember what I've said or what I haven't. Um, one of my favorite analogies to think about how this works is that, that's similar to music. Okay, and I'm a music lover. I love bands. I love finding new bands. I love um, analyzing and finding cool stuff and all that. And so if you have any band suggestions, let me know. And I'll just tell you whether they're good or not. And uh, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll say thank you very much, and then I'll decide for myself. But, um, but so, so the way that information is spread and sent and the, the way that people gain influence is different today than it has been for most of history. Okay, even up to you know, 50 years ago. And I think music is a really great analogy to kind of under, so help us understand what's happening in the world. Um, and we will get to the text. It's going to take us a little longer to get to the text than I usually like to, but, but hang in there. We're getting there, okay? Um, so 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, the music business had what we would call gatekeepers, okay? These were the people who decided what bands were going to get out there. What bands were going to be played on the radio? What bands were going to get to cut albums or whatever else? And so these were producers, they were talent managers, they were studios, they were radio uh, you know, announcers, whoever. These were the gatekeepers. And so you had all these people out here that were musicians and wanted to make music, but if they ever wanted to get their music in front of everybody, you would have to go through a gatekeeper. And those gatekeepers decided what kind of music would be out there, what they thought people would respond to, what kinds of albums they thought they would buy. And so what that did was limited the opportunity for people to get on the radio and to get their music out there. They could play at a local whatever if they wanted to. But to get mass market uh, distribution, you'd have to go through one of those gatekeepers, right? And that was good and bad. 
There was, there's good and bad to that. It meant that there were great talents out there that never got to be in front of the public. and We never got to be blessed with their music because they never got through the right gatekeeper or their thing wasn't marketable enough or it didn't fit the right genre. And you had these really clear genres of music at that point too, very clearly defined genres. Well, that's how it used to be. That's how it was when I was growing up. Fast forward to today's time where we have digital means of, of distribution, literally anybody can get their music out there. There are no gatekeepers anymore. If, you, if you're a musician and you want to get your music out in front of the world, all you got to do is make a YouTube video. And you can instantly reach millions upon millions of people. There's nobody sitting behind a desk deciding whose music gets to be out there whose music gets to influence people, whose music gets in front of people. And because of that, some really, I think, cool things are happening. One thing, all these genre lines are breaking down. And you've got, you've got different kinds of music that you're like, I don't even know quite what that is. I don't even know how to categorize that because this really unique and brilliant artist is able to put their stuff out there and they're doing music in a way that a studio or a producer would never spend the money to cut an album for and to get distribution. So it's created a pathway for anybody to get their music out there, which is really, really awesome. And it's allowed, I think, a lot of really great musicians to break through and to, to gain our attention that, that we really like and care about. And then even to have your little niches of music that you're like, yeah, this isn't for most people, but this is definitely for me. I love this, you know? And you can find those people. But the downside of that is, the, is, is right on the other side of the coin, is that everybody can get their music out there. Okay? <laughs> and it is not all good. <laughs> it is not all good. So there are those gems out there but you got to wade through a lot of stuff to find those gems. And I've listened to a lot of objectively bad music to find some of the great people that I've been able to find. And so it's created this sort of, there are no gatekeepers. It's created this wild, wild west, which means you have to use when it comes to music, your own discernment to find the things that you like and the things that you don't like and to try to support those people so they can keep making music and all of that sort of thing. So it's kind of created this wild, wild west of music. The same thing has happened with spiritual understandings and theology and doctrine. It used to be that if you wanted to stand on a stage and influence people spiritually to be a pastor or, what, or an evangelist or whatever, you had to go through a gatekeeper. There was a denomination or there was somebody who was deciding who was qualified or who had the right theology or who had whatever in order to stand on stage and to preach and to influence people and say, this is what God says, or this is who God is, or this is who you are in Christ. You had to go through a gatekeeper. And there was good and bad to that. It was good in that the people who got on stage were, were generally qualified and vetted and all of that. But it was, it was bad also in that the gatekeepers weren't always understanding the truth themselves. <laughs> and so you, and wherever you were and whoever happened to be an influence over you, that's who you believed. That's who you listened to. And that's who, you, that's what you did. All right. So right or wrong on denominations or beliefs or whatever. If you lived in a uh, small town and there was a Baptist church and there was a Presbyterian church, those were the two influence, religious influencers that were in town. You were either Baptist or you were Presbyterian, whether that's right or wrong, you know? So you were just under the influence that you were under. So fast forward to today, where nobody needs, uh, they don't need to have a stage to stand on at a church or a podium or a microphone or anything. You can literally just make a TikTok 
and talk about who God is or what the Bible says about something or, or who you are, or how salvation works. Anybody can lift up their phone and make a video and instantly reach millions of people. There are no gatekeepers anymore to ideas about God. And so there's some great things about that. And there are some dangerous things about that. The, the reality is that there are ideas that can get out there now, some teachings that are truly biblical but don't fall within denominational lines that can get airtime now, which is, I think is awesome. So that we're not all bound into a this particular system or that particular system. We can figure out what the scripture actually says. And so we're exposed to some of those ideas. We have the opportunity to find teachers and spiritual influencers who we never ever would have seen before because we have access to them through the internet. And I think that's awesome. Um, there's a particular pastor out of California who has a YouTube channel, um, and he's not even a senior pastor. He doesn't preach on the weekends. He's a, he's a, a student pastor at a fairly large church. He's a youth pastor. And I, I've seen very few people in my entire life that, that interpret and exegete scripture the way that he does. It is, it is remarkable, and it's refreshing, and I love watching his content, and I always filter it through what is actually true, so I'm not just taking it all in. But I've, I've found that he is tremendously influential. I really trust him. And I found him because I found his YouTube channel. And if it weren't for that, I never would have he heard him preach, ever. Never in a million years, a youth pastor from California. Never in a million years. And so it's created this really cool open marketplace of ideas. But the big danger is that not everything you see is true or right, or biblical. It's too easy to just take a verse up out of its context and make a video and say, this is what it means about you, or about God, or about your life, or whatever, or your relationship with him, how salvation works. And we have to be unbelievably careful right now about who influences us and who gets in here with their ideas, and who gets in here with their ideas. So we have to be very conscious of that, very cognizant. Paul is warning the Galatians, they need to have discernment to, to, to weigh the ideas and take the ideas that these Judaizers are coming in and telling them and hold them up against scripture, what they know to be true and what he taught them. And then also say, who do you trust? Do you trust them or do you trust me? Because we wanna know as much as we can know, but there's a limit to what we know. And then beyond what we know, we have to know who we can trust beyond that to influence us and to listen to those things. And so it is incredibly important to develop this discernment. So be very conscious, be very aware, and filter everything through. And have, this is one of the things we talked about in our group, have relationships in your life where if you see a video online or you read an article or you see it, something on a, a, a news program, you can shoot it to a friend that you trust and say, what do you think about this? All right, somebody that you trust has a biblical knowledge to be able to say, what do you think about this? And Feel free to send those to me if you want to, if you do trust my opinion. I get stuff from people all the, all the time like that. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? And I'll tell you what I actually think about it. And then I hope that you have other people in your life beyond me that you can do that with because I only have so much time. And uh, it also stresses me out a little bit. So anyway, uh, so we gotta be really careful about the sources you have around you. Really important to understand things. And one of the things I love about going through um, uh, a study like we're going through in Galatians, where we're working through it piece by piece by piece, teaching on, on the weekend in the service, and then also discussing it in groups during the week, is that it allows us to see the broader picture of what's going on. This is a concept that we call context. You probably hear that word all the time. 
But understanding scripture requires context on some level. You, it's, it's very difficult to take one verse out of the Bible all on its own and understand what it's actually saying without knowing what's going on around it. That's a journey that we're on of learning more and more of that as believers as we go on. Something, something we need to actively do. But context brings clarity. And when we are studying the way that we're studying, we have this big context that brings clarity to the passages that we read. Um, to demonstrate that, I wanna show you a picture all right, let's put the picture up. Where do we have it? Is it on the sides or up on the back? There it is. All right, I want you to take a good look at that picture. Analyze it for a second. All right, take a look at that picture. Uh, now, what is that a picture of? A string? That's a good guess, but no. Fishing line is also a good guess, but no. Spider web is also a good guess, but no. <laughs> a ray of light, good guess. Again, no. Not a laser. It's not a bee. Okay, that could be a close-up of a bee, couldn't it? Like the spot on it, like super close-up. Yeah, yeah. It's not. All right? This is why context is so important. If you zoom in on something, it's very hard to tell what's going on. But if you zoom out, you have instant clarity. So let's zoom out. There you go. That's a picture of me, 10 years old. I decided I was going to be a professional golfer. So I dressed up in my best Payne Stewart outfit, slapped on my grandfather's driving cap, tucked in my polo, cinched up my sweatpants, that's what those are, put on my high socks and put on my soccer cleats that I used for football. That's right. Went out there with my garage sale golf set that has a little seat on the front, and I was learning to hit the links by hitting the ball into a hole that a post for our willow tree made. I pulled the post out, and there's, there was the golf hole. That's what I played with in the backyard, all right? Now you know what that picture is. I love that picture. It sits on my dad's desk where he used to write sermons, and uh, so he always had that picture up there. Now, if you zoom back in, what is it? It's a golf club, <laughs> right? It's, a, it's the shaft of a golf club. Now, it's obvious once you've zoomed out, and then you come back in, it's obvious. But when you start small, it's very hard to understand what's going on. But when you start wide and then zoom in, it's a lot easier. That's what we're running into in the book of Galatians. There's a lot of verses here in Galatians. When we went through Romans, this was huge when we went through Romans. There's a lot of verses in Romans, Galatians, other places in Scripture that could be very easily misunderstood or could be confusing because we don't have the bigger context. Coming into what we're going to read today, this could be confusing without a greater context. And so we have some of that because we've been coming through Galatians and understanding what Paul's doing. He's writing to the Galatians, these Christians, who've been confused by these Judaizers, and he's saying, no, salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Jesus and through faith in Jesus alone. That's the only way to be saved. It's the only way to be justified before God. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to observe the Sabbath. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to keep the Passover. You don't have to eat kosher. You don't have to do any of that stuff, okay? You could choose to do those things if you want to, but your salvation is secured by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And so he's trying to clear this up for them so they're not confused. And he wants them to know that this is the biblical understanding, not only is it what he's teaching them right now, but this has always been the plan for God. It was always the plan to do this, but the Judaizers just didn't realize it. And so he's going to make a very biblical argument today for salvation being by grace and not by works. 
And he's going to go back, way back before the law, in order to make that point. He's going to go back to the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. Now, I'm going to explain the story for everyone. So, because, again, context, you need to understand the story in order to understand what's going on. But this is what he says to them. And he's, he's finalizing his point. Next week, as we move into chapter 5, he's going to really start with application. What does this mean for you? How do you walk in this new reality? But as he finishes up his point, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Don't you see what the law actually is? Okay, verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. So, Paul is going to go into a, and he calls it an allegory, an allegory from the life of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And so he's going to contrast those two as we walk through the scripture today. He, this is a technique that Paul really likes to use. He used it a bunch in Romans. And when we were going through Romans, I did these charts where we would put the one side and then the contrast. All right, one side and then the other. I was told that was very helpful. So we're going to do that again today. So, in the story, and I'm going to explain the story for those of you that don't know it. I'm going to explain it so that you're up to speed. But he says, uh, those of you that desire to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. So over here, we're going to put bondwoman, free woman. Okay. The bondwoman is named Hagar. The free woman is Sarah. Now, when the story starts, just so you know, so there's no confusion. When the story starts, um, Sarah goes by Sarai and Abraham goes by Abram. All right, so if you see those people, those names in Scripture, that's, those are the same people. God renames them um, when he confirms his covenant to them. So they enter into this, this relationship with God. They come to a new understanding of their relationship with God, and so God changes their name. Um, it's a little bit like Jess, my wife, who's with the kids today, by the way. So if there's not uproarious laughing when I make a joke, it's because she's not in here. And, um, uh, but, you know, so, so growing up, and don't tell her I told you this. She's embarrassed by it. Um, growing up, she was Jesse. Jesse. Jesse Sue. It sounds like a southern name, but she was in New York. I'm telling you, Jesse Sue. All right, she was Jesse growing up. So still, when we go home to visit, everybody calls her Jesse. But when she got to college and she was entering into a new phase in her life, she decided she didn't want to go by Jesse anymore. She needed a more adult name. And so she changed it to Jess. So when I met her, she was Jess. I like, I like to say that I changed her name, but I did not. That's not true. Uh, she was Jess when I met her. But still, when we go home, she's still Jesse. So God changes, God actually changes Sarai's name to Sarah. Abram's name to Abraham. I'm going to call him Abraham and Sarah as we go through today be, just to avoid confusion. All right, but let's, uh, let's tell the story. Let's talk about the story because um, when Paul writes this to the Galatians, he assumes they know this story. Now he is, when he says, you who desire to be under the law, don't you hear the law? He's actually addressing the Jews. He's addressing the Judaizers that are in their midst. And he said, okay, you know this story. And then he does the allegory based on the story. But you may not know this story. So, so let's talk about what happened with Abraham 
and Hagar and Sarah. Abraham was married to Sarah, okay, a free woman. And God made a promise to Abraham, a covenant with Abraham, when Abraham was 75 years old. And God said, you are going to, I'm going to give you this land, the promised land that you're going to get. I'm going to give you descendants as many as the stars in the sky. And through you, all the nations will be blessed, which God is speaking of the gospel, the coming of Jesus. Jesus will come through you and will bless all the nations. The gospel will be open to everyone, even though I'm choosing a people right now. And so the key part of this, however, is that in order to have descendants, Abraham has to have children. He has to have a son. And the problem is he is 75 years old and Sarah has not yet had any children. She is unable to have children, it seems. And so God makes this promise to Abraham and to Sarah, and he makes this promise to Abraham that he's going to have all these sons, doesn't have any kids. But Abraham believes God's promise, and it's accounted to him for righteousness. Now, fast forward 10 years. 10 years when Abraham is 85 years old. And I just want you to think. Think, think, think about how much water under the bridge happens in 10 years. Think, think back 10 years ago in your own life for a moment. What were you like? What was your life like? I bet it was dramatically different than it is today. 10 years pass. 10 years pass. And he's, and he's moved and he's t- taken over some of the land and a lot of things have happened. But in those 10 years, Abraham still does not have a son. Yet God has promised them all these descendants, and they're not getting any younger. (laughs) The clock's ticking. And they're thinking maybe it's not possible for Sarah to have a child, for Sarah to have a son. And so Sarah actually decides to take the bull by the horns, to take matters into their own hands, and she thinks, "We, we need to get this done a different way. So Sarah comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you have this bond woman, the servant named Hagar, who's an Egyptian. Why don't you marry her and she can bear you a son? And then through her, that's how the promise will be fulfilled. This is Sarah's idea. Now, this is this was a time in history, just so we're clear. This is a time in history where having multiple wives, this was not considered immoral. This was not illegal. This was not, this was acceptable. And so Abraham's like, that's a good idea. And so, sure enough, he marries Hagar. I don't see how having multiple wives is a good idea, but he did, all right? One's enough for me. She's a handful. <laughs> anyway, she's great. <laughs> but, but he decides to marry Hagar so that they can have a child who will be his heir. To be clear, though, this is very important. This was not God's idea. God did not tell them to do this. They got impatient. They didn't trust that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so they figured out their own way to try and get it done. That should be sending off red flags. So sure enough, he marries Hagar. Hagar has a son. They name him Ishmael. Ishmael. And as far as anyone is concerned, Ishmael is the heir of Abraham, is the one through whom this promise and all of this stuff is going to happen. And that's the case for 14 years. So when, when Ishmael is 14 years old, that's a long time. Think back 14 years, what were things like? When Ishmael was 14 years old, 
Abraham is 99 years old, almost dead, I believe in his words. <laughs> when he is 99 years old, God comes to Abraham and reiterates the promise and says, Abraham, promise is not coming through Ishmael. It's, it's coming the way I told you it was going to happen. Sarah is going to bear a son, and you're going to name him Isaac. All right? And so God makes this promise. This is when he changes their names. All right? When he makes this promise, he changes their names. Sarai to Sarah, Abram to Abraham. He changes their name, and he says, you're going to give birth to a son. And sure enough, when Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. All right, so now we have, uh-oh. <laughs> Centrifugal force. Worked. Pay attention in science class. All right, to all the kids in the room, it works. All right. All right. So we have Ishmael and we have Isaac. Now Abraham has two sons, but he can't have two heirs. But God said that Isaac was going to be the heir. God said that he was going to be the guy. And by the way, it is funny. Before, um, uh, before um, I, Sarah gets pregnant with Isaac, God affirms the covenant to them, affirms the promise to them, says she is going to uh, bear a son. And uh, it's this it's this kind of crazy situation where the Lord comes and he's got other guys with him and he talks to Abraham under a tree and Sarah overhears them and it says that Sarah laughs in her heart. Like, <laughs> that's adorable, you know, <laughs> that's cute. Yeah, she's like, I'm almost dead. You, I'm gonna have a baby. And, uh, and, uh, and the Lord says, why does Sarah, she didn't laugh out loud. The Lord says, why did Sarah laugh? And she's like, I didn't laugh. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, you know what Isaac means? Laughter. <laughs> so don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor too. So Isaac's name means laughter. Anyway, so she has, uh, she has Isaac. And when Isaac is about three years old, the scripture says when he is weaned, they have a big ceremony for him. It's kind of a rite of passage for the child. And when that happens, Ishmael, who's now 17 years old, Ishmael, who's 17 years old, who spent his entire life thinking he was going to be the heir of the family, the heir of the promise, and now his father has had a child with the free woman, and he looks, and it says that he scoffs at Isaac, at that ceremony. He scoffs at his brother. And it's actually interesting, because in English, we translate it scoffs. It's the same word that's used of Sarah when she laughs at God. It's the same word. So, so, so Ishmael laughs at Isaac. He scoffs. He doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it. And because of this, Sarah realizes that the house can't have two heirs. The house can't have two heirs. The rightful heir needs to stay. And so she goes to Abraham and she says, Abraham, Hagar and Ishmael need to go. And Abraham doesn't like it at first because Abraham loves Ishmael. That's his son. Loves Hagar. That's his wife. May have come second, but nevertheless. But God says, no, this is what needs to happen. And God's making a point here. This is what needs to happen. And so Hagar and Ishmael go to Arabia. 
and, and many in that area today trace their lineage back to Ishmael. And so they have to go. All right, so that's the story. And then the, 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 the promise, the family flows through Isaac. So Abraham, and then Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob, Joseph, and on down the line, okay? So let's go back to what Paul is. Now that we know what's going on here, um, let's go back and listen to what Paul has to say about this story and how it relates to what he's trying to teach them about the gospel and grace and works and the law, all right? So back to Galatians chapter 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, we already read this, the one by a bondwoman, Hagar, and the other by a free woman, Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. So here's where he draws out a difference. Ishmael was born through the flesh, Meaning, this was the result of Sarah and Abraham's idea, right? This was their plan. This is how they thought it should work. Whereas Isaac was born according to the promise. This was God's plan. This is how God wanted it to work. He wanted them to wait on him, not to rush things and do things their own way. And I think there's a pretty important teaching point in that. And that's one of the things uh, that we're going to discuss in groups this week. Have we ever done that? Have we ever rushed it? Have we ever rushed the plan when we should have waited on God to do things his way? And what happened because of that? Talk about that some in groups this week. Okay, so that was verse 23. He was born of the, uh, the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and he of the free woman through promise. Now verse 24, which things are symbolic or an, he used the word allegory, which are an allegory. For these are the two covenants. Now, this is something we've talked about. And each of these describes or or demonstrates one of the covenants. The law was a part of something that we call the Mosaic covenant, okay? This was the covenant given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The promise is part of what we call the Abrahamic covenant, That was the covenant that was given to Abraham that had to do with the land and had to do with descendants and had to do with being a blessing to all the earth, all right? So he said, for these are the two covenants. This is the allegory. This is the story. This is the comparison. This is the contrast, all right? The one from Mount Sinai, that's the Mosaic covenant where where Moses received it on Mount Sinai. One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. So the result of this one is bondage. These are the people who are under the law, are restricted by the law, are controlled by the law, are led by the law, have to look at all the rules and all the regulations and figure out how to keep all of those things and try to do it as perfectly as they possibly can. And when you live that way with a religious system like that, it puts you in bondage to that system. That's what he's saying, all right? The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. So he's drawing the line back up, which is Hagar. For this, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. And I think this is just a little point in there. Like, you know, she was sent to Arabia with Ishmael, right? Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Can you see the, can you see the connection there, all right? 
So uh, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which, is, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So now he talks about um, earthly Jerusalem. which, of course, is the center of the Jewish world. It is where the, these Judaizers have come from. It's where they were taught and trained. And so, uh, and so he says, you can see that demonstrated right now in Jerusalem, the city, the place where you go, okay? which is in bondage with her children. So on the, we're going to get to that later. All right, so we have the two women, the two sons, the two covenants, and we're going to get to the difference between those in a moment. Part of the problem here is that the Judaizers who've come in are looking at the Galatians and they're saying, look, we follow the law. We are more biblical than him. We're more biblical than him. We're more honoring to God because God has given us all of this because this is the plan and this is what God has shown us. And what Paul is trying to say is, yes, I see what you're saying, but that was added because of man's sin. That was added out of necessity. That was a stopgap measure. That was a, that was a temporary thing until the promise would actually come. And the promise is Jesus. And so now that Jesus is here, we don't, we're not under the law anymore. Just like Ishmael. Yeah, it was a stopgap measure. It was their idea. They put it in place to be in place and to have an heir until the time that the promise actually came. And the promise was through Isaac. So he's saying the point that Paul's trying to make is, guys, this has always been the plan. This has always been what God planned to do. And so these Judaizers who say they're more biblical or they're more true or they're more fundamental or they're more conservative are not, in fact, because they're missing what God is actually doing. And this is what God is actually doing. Yes, he's like, we're, we hold to the fundamentals. That's what the Judaizers are saying. He's like, yes, you are fundamentally wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, conservative does not mean correct. Those aren't the same thing. Biblical is correct. And so that's what Paul is showing. He's saying, this is what has been in the scripture all the time. All right. Uh, going forward into verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. The Jerusalem above is free. So the result of this is not bondage. The result of the promise is freedom. And then I'm going to put heavenly Jerusalem. He wants them to see the difference. He wants them to see that this is truly scriptural, this is truly biblical. But he wants to see the functional difference between these two things. The functional difference between living under the law and placing yourself under the law and living in grace and walking in grace. The fundamental difference is the difference between bondage and freedom. In, 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 in our, our mentality and how we view God and our relationship with him and who he is. He talked earlier in Galatians about not having to look at God as a, as a judge or that, anything like that anymore, but that we can come to God as Abba, our father that he loves us and we know, our, we know that we're saved. And so this has been the plan all along. The Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. All right, that's finishing verse 26. Now verse 27. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. 
So that's a scripture, that's a, uh, a prophecy that's actually about Israel originally and about them um, being in bondage and in exile, but saying rejoice even when you're in exile. This was the encouragement to them then. Rejoice when you're in exile because ultimately you're going to be brought out and ultimately God is gonna fulfill his promise to you. And so Paul is using that here to say, yes, for, for Sarah, she looked barren. She looked like she wasn't going to be able to be a part of the promise, but she needed to be patient and trust God and wait and trust his plan because his plan was better. His plan led to freedom instead of to bondage, okay? So the Jerusalem above, the city above, the new Jerusalem, the spiritual reality instead of the physical reality and that this new reality that we're in, walking in grace, would see many more descendants than those who are under the law. And that is true. That's what we've seen. A blessing to the entire world. This is what God has always intended. Salvation is by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Not by the law or any sort of religious system or rule. When we trust Christ... This is what Paul has been saying. When we trust Christ, we become a son of God. And that position is not kept by our works or our effort, but by the grace of our loving Father. And if we are sons of God, then we are heirs of God according to the promise. And nothing can take that away from us. Paul's confidence and our confidence is that this is thoroughly biblical from start to finish from the creation through Adam, through the law, to Jesus Christ, to us today. And that's what we want. We want to know the facts. Not what somebody else's ideas of the facts are. We want to know the facts. On those facts, we want to build our faith. And as we build our faith on those facts, we want to see the true and real spiritual fruit that God wants to bring in our life, which we'll be talking more about over the next couple of weeks. He goes on in verse 29 and says, But... As he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted, or tried to run off, scoffed at, okay? Persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So we see a, a contrast here, that under the law, under this covenant, born of the flesh, if I can write, And under this covenant, born of the Spirit. Two fundamentally different realities. Fundamentally different, and we have to keep them separate and understand what they are. And then he says in verse 30, Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. That was sending Hagar and Ishmael to Arabia. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So the question when you look at all this is, who's your mama? <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's the question. <laughs> who's your mama? This one is cast out. You try to be justified before God by your effort. If you try to be justified by being a good person, by keeping a list of rules, by all of that, that does not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the, here's the problem. Let me get this up here. Cast out, heir. Uh, 
your mama? Not the mama. Not the mama. I was waiting for that one. Not the mama. Yeah. If you ever watch dinosaurs on TGF in the 90s. Anyway, yeah. Anyway. The question is, who's your mama? Who's your mama? If you try, this is the exclamation point. He's going back past the law to prove it. If you try to be justified before God, if you try to inherit the kingdom by keeping the law of of the flesh under the bondage of the law, you will not inherit the kingdom. This is so, and this this matters for us. It matters for us when we think about ourselves and when we think about the people around us that we love and care about. The truth is, if you want to hear the truth, and you you can assess me based on scripture and then whether you trust me or not when I say this, but the truth is, none of us are good enough to inherit the kingdom of God. We have all fallen short of God's glory. It doesn't matter how good you are or how good I am or how bad you are or how bad I am. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And there is no religious system, Christianity, or anything else on the earth that can overcome that. They're going to allow us to overcome it. The best person that you know in your entire life falls short of the glory of God. The best person you can think about in the history of the world falls short of the glory of God. The idea that God is at the top of this mountain and we are all climbing up different sides. So the Christians are climbing up this side and the Buddhists are climbing up this side and the the Muslims are climbing up this side and whatever else you want, The, 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 the spiritual naturalists are climbing up this side, whatever system you want to use. The idea that God is at the top and everybody's finding their way up doesn't work because nobody reaches the top of the mountain. God is holy and he is pure and no human being can be. No purely natural human being can be. And so we may all be trying to climb up the side of this mountain, but the problem is no matter what religious system you use to try and climb up, nobody's getting there. And God, being holy and just, and knowing that nobody can climb up the side of the mountain, did the only thing that could be done. He came down. He came down, fully God and fully man, in the flesh, and did what is impossible for us to do. Lived without sin. And then offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross in our place. So while we're all scratching and clawing and trying to climb up to this top of this mountain that we're never going to get to. Jesus came down and he reached out his hand and he said, I'll take you there. I'll carry you up. So as nice as it is to think that we look around at our friends like, well, listen, you find your way and you find your way and you find that way. The problem is, and this is not a judgmental statement, the problem is we're all in the same boat because we can't get there. I can't either. 
I can't, I can't get there by keeping the Ten Commandments. I can't, I can't get there by keeping all the Jewish law. I can't get there by, by reading through the New Testament and everything Paul says about sin and about righteousness and by trying to do all of that stuff because I fall short of the glory of God. And the best Muslim who's ever lived falls short of the glory of God. And the best Jew who has ever lived falls short of the glory of God. And the best the best Buddhist who has ever lived falls short of the glory of God. The best person, philanthropist, you name it, falls short of the glory of God. And the only way to be in his presence for all of eternity is through the righteousness of Jesus and not our own. That's it. And that's why this is so important that we see that this isn't going to do it. So that we have a proper understanding of ourselves. So we have a proper understanding of God and his holiness and how we stack up to that. And so that we understand that the only way we get there is through his grace. His grace and his love offered to us by Jesus Christ. We have to, who's, which one are you doing? Which one is the tenor of your life? And even if you accepted this, maybe you accepted this before, maybe you accepted this years and years and years ago. You accepted Jesus Christ, the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. You accepted him, and you were set free. Why in the world would you put yourself back under this? That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians, because he knows they're saved. He's not worried about their salvation. He knows that they're saved. He knows they accepted this. He was there when it happened. It was unbelievable. But now he's got people that are taking him back under this, and he said, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Why would you put yourself back in bondage? Why would you put yourself back under the law and think that this somehow now is going to keep you saved? Don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. Because what ends up happening, you end up living in fear of God. You end up living in insecurity about your position with him. You end up living with shame over the things you think you can't be forgiven for that you're already forgiven for, that Christ already paid for. And you end up living as a shell of who God wants you to be. Instead, and this is where we're going over the next few weeks through the rest of this series up until Christmas, which is coming soon. It's not here yet. Don't talk about it. We're getting there. But where he's going with this is, all right, we know we are set free by this. And we know that putting ourselves back under this is going to lead us to, to bondage, to fear, to all of those things, to a wrong understanding of ourselves, a wrong understanding of God, a wrong understanding of other people. So we're not going back under this. However, God's desire for us is to be holy. So if we don't, to, to be conformed into the image of Jesus. So if we're not putting ourselves back under this in order to do it, how are we doing it? How are we going to fulfill the will of God to walk in the spirit? How are we going to be conformed into the image of God in the freedom that we've been given rather than finding ourselves back under bondage? That's where we're going. And I know for me, as I've been reading and studying, this has been like, to use a corny analogy, like a flower opening up where it's allowing me as I've been reading and studying and seeing what Paul is saying and firmly just crushing and killing the idea that this will get us there. 
what God has been opening up in my own heart about what he wants from me and how he's transforming me and how I'm walking. And I pray that as we move forward in the series, he's gonna do the same thing in your heart and in your life. And some of you are gonna see a totally new way of honoring and loving and following, pursuing God, being a disciple of Jesus in freedom with, with our chins up and our eyes open and our hearts open and being able to become the people that God has designed us to be. By the way, using this, but not placing ourselves under it. Using his word, using the law, in the spirit uses scripture to teach us so that we can walk in freedom. People used to be under the law, but in Christ we are above it beyond it, and he's doing something new and different in us. And so what I want to do right now as we, as we pray, as we get ready to f- sing one more song before we go today, I want to take a moment right now, because this is, this is, this at the end of chapter four for Paul is a period moment. And this is a transition moment. And I want to encourage you to say, I pray that by now, if, if, if you don't, then you go back and you watch and you read and you learn and you find some other reader, whatever you need, that this is firmly set in your heart. You understand this. That we don't need to be under the law anymore, that we don't have to follow the law anymore, that we are walking in grace and freedom. Paul has finished that statement. And so I want you to, in this moment as we're praying, to in your own heart say, I get that, I understand that. Now, God, Now I want you to show me how I'm going to walk in this freedom that I know that I have. Not under a law, not under fear, not under shame, not under condemnation. How I am going to walk with you now in this new reality that we are in. And I want you right now to just to start opening that, opening up those pedals and saying, God, right now in this moment, I want to begin opening up and seeing what it means to walk in freedom and in the spirit with you. All right, let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we express our our love, deep, indescribable love and appreciation for you. We are completely, and we, we recognize this and we say this in front of you right now, we are completely incapable of saving ourselves. We do not deserve to be in your presence. We do not deserve to have a relationship with you. You are good and you are holy and you are just and you are kind and you are merciful and we don't deserve any of that. Because as hard as we try, as much as we scratch and claw and climb, we always find that we fall short of your glory. And every person who has ever been born of the flesh in this entire world has fallen short of your glory. And so we wanna make sure that God, that we we stand in front of you, we are in the right position here. That we have the right understanding, that we don't think that we have earned anything. We don't think that we deserve anything. We don't think that just because we're a human being, we are owed anything by you. And so knowing that and accepting that, we recognize that there is no law we can keep. 
There is no religious system we can observe that is so intricate and all-encompassing that we could overcome our sin, which we recognize. And so we, we stand before you. We sit before you poor. We sit before you beggars. We sit before you insufficient and inadequate. We sit before you humble and recognize that in your goodness, because you are love and because you are merciful, you did what you don't have to do. And you willingly sent your son here to do what we are incapable of doing. Jesus, you took on human flesh, fully God and fully man. And you did it. You lived completely without sin. And so we know that we can look at your life and we can listen to your words we can watch your actions and we can see what sinlessness looks like. We can see how you lived and what you did and we can learn from that. But because you were sinless and because you were willing, you went to the cross. You died a criminal's death, one that you didn't deserve to give us what we don't deserve. You bled and you were beaten on our behalf. And you offered yourself as the perfect, final, atoning sacrifice in our place. And to prove that death couldn't hold you, to prove that you are who you say you are. To defeat death, you were placed in a tomb, and on the third day, you rose again in power and victory back to life. The promise that just as you were raised, we too will be raised. And so, Father, I thank you, and so many in this room thank you for the gift that you've given to us that we don't deserve. And the message to know that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to live up to it. We don't have to change things and get things in order and do things just the right way to finally now deserve it or earn it or anything like that. You offer it to us by your grace. You so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what you ask of us. No work, no effort, nothing like that. To believe. To put our faith in Jesus for salvation, to recognize we, we can't do it. To put our faith in Jesus and to receive your grace. I did that years ago. People in this room have done that years ago, weeks ago, months ago. Someone may do it today, God. 
and for the first time say, I am completely incapable. I have tried, but this leads me, it's leading me to bondage. It's leading me to fear. It's leading me to insecurity. I can't do it. But Jesus did it. And I trust him. I believe in him. And Father, when we make that decision, whether someone made it right now or whether it was years ago, when we make that decision, you send us your spirit and you give us the opportunity not to live under some straitjacket, not to live under a law, not to live in bondage or fear, but to walk in the freedom of the spirit and not to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, not to use that freedom as, as a, 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 a way to, to get away with things or to live sinfully, but in this freedom to understand in openness and in joy and in hope and in love to understand and to be led by the Spirit into the image of Christ, to be transformed into His image, to ultimately become the kind of people you wanted us to be in the first place, to take on His character, to take on His love, to take on His grace, and to take this message that we believe and that we walk in as we're transformed into his image, as we increase in holiness and get ready for the day when Christ will return, to take this message to as many people as we can and to say, you're living in bondage and you can be free. You can be free like I am. I was there too. I lived there too. So God, fill us with an understanding of who we are. Fill us with an understanding of who you are. Fill us with an understanding of what you have done so solid and so firm that we stand on confidently, but that we also can share that and communicate that with the people that we love, with the people around us who are scratching and clawing and getting dirt under their nails, trying to climb the mountain that they're never going to get to the top of. And to show them and to tell them what grace is. And that, God, you may set them free. It'd be a great honor to be a part of that. And so, Father, as we prepare now, as we look forward, as we thank you for your love, as we prepare now to, to hear from Paul in the book of Galatians on what it means now, how we walk in the Spirit, how we open up and how we live the kinds of lives you've designed for us to live in this freedom we have. God, I pray that you would be opening us up, that you'd be opening up our hearts and our minds and saying, God, whatever it is you have for us next, whatever you want to teach us and how you want to encourage us and how you want to change us, we pray now that you would do that. Begin that process in our heart. Teach us and show us. And we'll offer ourselves back to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.